Well, hey, uh, good morning, everybody. My name is Austin, one of the pastors here. Excited to see you guys. Uh, before you wonder, hey, I, I thought we were just in Hebrews 10. Why are we in Hebrews 12? We're not heretics. We're going to jump back to Hebrews 11 after Easter. So we're going to finish up the book of Hebrews. Uh, then we'll have Easter Sunday. And then right after, we're actually going to spend five or six weeks in the book or in the chapter 11th chapter of Hebrews to actually walk through uh, each kind of person individually and, uh, and go through. It's, it's going to be amazing. So just so you know, why do we skip 11? I'll give some context to it. But hey, uh, it's also a family Sunday, so there's some kiddos in the room. We're excited about that. Uh, and uh, it's just fun to see our whole family worship together. And uh, same Holy Spirit that lives in us, lives in them if they've given a lot to Jesus. So thanks for being here, kids. Uh, question for you guys, though. Uh, raise your hand if you have ever ran a half marathon or a full marathon. Wow, impressive, okay? Uh, those of you who haven't raised their hands, you are a lot like me in a lot of different ways. I just got pressured into it two years ago, okay? So my buddy and I, Ben, signed up for it. I don't know why we did it, but I was kind of excited for it. I'm like, okay, I think we can do it. And uh, so I think I had four months to prepare, and, um, and then they gave me a running plan that kind of laid out how to work yourself up to 13.1 miles, okay? So uh, two weeks out, and I had never ran or prepared, and my wife was like, hey, you literally can't run this race in your vans. Like, we need to get shoes for you. And so we go out, we go to Holes of all places, and I find some running shoes, New Balance, for $29.99 on sale. Okay, I was pretty happy about it, so I was like, that's going to be great. So I get those shoes. I think, like, I'm all ready to run, right? Like, I'm a marathon runner. And so I, uh, I get them, and then um, literally buying those shoes and running one two-mile jog before is all I did to prepare. Like, that was all I did. And so that morning comes, and I'm like six or seven miles in, and my back hurts so bad. I've been running the whole time, and my side is cramping. And I think my feet are broken because I have like the crappiest shoes you could imagine on. I thought they were amazing. They were not going to have good support. Like, it was not good. And so they're not broken in either. So like, I'm getting blisters. It's not good. Anyways, I, I had to walk. At six or seven miles in, I was running. I was like, no, I got to walk. So I walked. By God's grace, I ended up finishing the race in just under three hours. Now, that's not a great time, but I finished. Okay, I crossed that finish line, right? I got a medal to prove it. And so, uh, anyways, man, it was crazy. But literally, I run past the finish line. All my friends had already finished, straight to the trash can and threw up. Okay, I was like, and I sat down for 30 minutes, regretting everything. And I remember asking one question why didn't I prepare better? Like, just say really simply, like, man, I could have avoided so much hurt if I just would have prepared a little bit more and stuck to the plan, even half of the plan, right? Um, man, and I had a real chance to, like, not finish the race. Like, I could have bowed out and not finished it. And so I'm just thinking, why didn't I prepare better? Here's why this matters. Hebrews 12 says that you and I are on a race, uh, you and I are on a race, and it's not a half marathon or an Ironman triathlon. It's much harder, uh, but it has a much greater reward. And, uh, and I'm convinced that, that for m- most of us in the room fall into one of two categories. The first is those of us uh, who don't realize that we're on a race that requires endurance, okay? First group is those of us who don't realize we're on a race that requires endurance. And so maybe you think Christianity is an invitation uh, just to kick back and come to church and hang out and eat a donut, and they can even be green on St. Pat's Day. And uh, you know what I mean? Just like, like that, that's what it is. Like listen to a sermon, sing some songs, and go home. Maybe that's all you think Christianity is. Uh, maybe you think that Christianity is an uh, is, is all-inclusive cruise where you hang out for the rest of your life until Jesus takes you home. And if that's you, um, that's a lie. Like, 
that's not true. You know, you're, you're not on a cruise ship. You're on a battleship. You're not riding around town on a Segway. You are running a race that requires endurance. And following Jesus is fun, and it's exhilarating, and it's spontaneous and adventurous and so worth it, but it is not easy. You can use a lot of beautiful words to describe what it looks like to follow Jesus, but one of them is not easy, right? The second group of people that I think is in the room is those of us that understand we're in a race, but aren't doing anything to prepare for it, right? Aren't doing anything to actually run the race. And so you're doing what I did with the half marathon, right? You um, have your Bible, the proverbial running shoes, but you've never broken them in. You've never opened it up, or you do rarely, right? Uh, You've got time and opportunity to go out on a run, and yet you choose to stay inside. You've got friends that want to run with you and train with you, and yet you've neglected to, to join them. Uh, you, you keep telling yourself, man, I'm going to start preparing next week. I'm going to get serious about it next week, right? And if that's either one of you, if you're falling to either one of those categories, which I'm sure 100% of us do in some form or fashion, I've got great news for you. Great news. Hebrews 12 says that we have a Savior to look to, a father to discipline us, and a path to run. Okay, so we're going to walk through each of those uh, encouragements and, uh, and go through. So let's read verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews 12. The first two verses, Therefore, referring back to uh, 11, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay it, also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay, so our first point that our text shows us is we have a Savior to look to. Now, verse 1 says we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. This is referring back to chapter 11, right? And chapter 11 is filled with the stories of Abel and, and, and Moses and Abraham and Sarah and Rahab and all these other uh, people who finished well or ran well, right? And the idea of being surrounded by them isn't supposed to give us the imagery of people in stands watching us. No, the imagery is actually of someone at the finish line cheering us on, okay? So these people that saying are, we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses aren't critical spectators in the stands wondering why we're not working better. They are fa- loving family members at the finish line encouraging us to keep going. Okay, that's the picture. So they finished the race well, they've ran hard, and they're a great example for us, right? Um, now, uh, scientists believe for hundreds of years that it was actually physically impossible to run a mile in under four minutes, okay? Until 1954, a guy named Roger Bannister uh, broke the world record and ran the mile under four minutes, okay? Shattered what scientists thought was impossible, uh, six weeks later, a guy named John Landy beat it, right? Like crazy. It took hundreds of years, or it had never been done before, got done, and six weeks later, someone beat it, right? Here's the point. We think it's impossible until someone does it, right? You tracking with me? And then it's like, whoa, m- m- maybe, maybe I could do it, you know? Maybe I could actually do that. And then now, what was once impossible is the standard for any professional mid-distance runner, right? Like, a ton of people have broken a four-minute Mile. And so here, here's the application for us. Uh, they did it. Normal people did it. The encouragement is, so can you, right? That's what the author is drawing us to. Man, you've got a great cloud of witnesses, an example, people encouraging you. You can do it too. And you may say, Austin, dude, you don't know my life, okay? I definitely don't have the faith of Abraham. Like that dude is crazy, faithful, amazing to God. You may say, I'm not like him. Listen, all of the people mentioned in Hebrews 11 were faithful, but they were also flawed. 
Like, make no mistake, this isn't a list of rock stars. It's a list of rebellious sinners who saw their need for God and ran to him, right? And so uh, normal people have done it, right? Um, Flawed people have done it. So the encouragement is, friends, you can too, right? And so we have got a a great example in these people. um, But what else do we need to run well? Well, verse 1 says, we have to lay aside... Uh, every weight and sin which clings so closely, right? So I remember first giving my life to Jesus and, uh, and then being so aware of sin in my life. Like it, just, it felt like it just, like in a moment, I just had realized, man, I'm just so not as good as I thought I was before I'd accepted Jesus. And uh, I often sit down with people and I'll ask, hey, what sin are you currently fighting? I think it's one of the Biggest evidences of, of, of faith in Jesus and being renewed by his spirit to see that you were fighting sin. And so, man, I deleted numbers in my phone that I knew wouldn't be good for me to have. I confessed lies that I told. I stopped going to parties. I deleted that app. You know, I just, there was this, I got accountability partners to help me walk in purity. There was this tangible steps that I took to enter a war on sin. And I prayed every single day, God, give me more love for you and more hatred for sin. Like that was my simple prayer and God slowly did it. And I want to be clear, fighting sin isn't just a a battle for the new believer, right? You will battle sin until the day Jesus brings you into eternity with him, right? So it's a battle for all believers, whether you've been walking with Jesus for five minutes or 50 years, okay? And so fighting sin is a non-negotiable if we're going to run this race. But I want to point out, notice verse 1 doesn't just say we lay aside sin, right? It says we lay aside every weight in sin, Okay, so what does that mean? Well, I swam in high school for a year, and I was blown away at the extent of what some people would go to to shave off a tenth of a second, you know? I'm like, really? Like that, like point one matters to you that much? Yep. And so they would shave their entire bodies, okay, to be more aerodynamic or have less resistance or feel, I don't know what it was, but they would shave their entire bodies to swim faster and finish well. This is what Hebrews 12 is inviting us to do. Not shave your whole bodies, okay? If you want to, you're like, I'm a Christian, I shave my body. It's like, no, 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 that's not how it works, you know? But to throw away, to take off anything that's holding you back, anything that's slowing you down, anything that's preventing you from running faster towards Jesus, you take off. Whatever it takes, you take it off and throw it away, right? And so um, uh, we have to ask that question, right? And so... um, the Christian life, like here, here's why this matters specifically, why I want to hone in on weight, not just sin, is because as Christians, most of the time, if we're going to assess our life, our spiritual health, the question goes straight to sin. How are you doing with it? Hey, uh, have you lied lately? Have you, uh, uh, have you lost your temper lately? Have you looked at pornography? Have you spent more than you should? You know, like that's what we go to, and those are great questions. We should ask those. We need to fight sin, but we can't forget the weight that's holding us back right? Like we can't forget that, the weight that, that's slowing us down. And so the question that marks the Christian, hear me say this, the question that marks the Christian isn't, can I do that? Or is it sin? The question we have to ask is, does it help me run, right? Does it help me run or does it get in my way? Does it help me be more loving and more sacrificial and more free and more generous and more caring and more thoughtful and more like Jesus? And if it doesn't, it's gone. It's not worth it. Does it help me run, right? Does it slow me down even a little, or does it help me run? And if it doesn't help me run, then it's gone. I don't need it. I don't want it. And so when you consider 
uh, buying that new thing, that new toy, that new whatever it is, ask, does it help me run? When you uh, are, are considering going downtown for that drink, ask, does it help me run? When you are about to finalize that upgrade on your home, ask, does it help me run? When you are about to say yes to that date, ask, does it help me run? When you're about to play that game or download that app, ask, does it help me run? And if it doesn't, say no. It's laid aside. Like, throw it away. And you may press and say, Austin, man, I... That sounds like saying no a lot, you know? Like, that sounds like saying no to a lot of really fun things, and you're right. It is, following Jesus does require us to say no, and you may wonder, how would I do this? How, how would I ever practically say no to all those things that seem really great in the moment? Here's the answer, by looking to something better, by looking to someone better, okay? So look at verse 2 with me. He says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Okay, so the only way, friends, that, that, that you're not allured by the objects around you is by fixing, uh, making Jesus the object of your gaze, right? Like, look to him. He is better. He is so much better. On Christmas morning, my daughter, when she opens up a gift, it, it's like the most valuable, she like loves it. She's holding on to it. She can never let it go until she finds something better. And once she does, she tosses that thing. It's old news, right? And like, I never had to teach her that. We never were like, hey, sweetheart, hold on to toys until you find something better. And then you let it go and grab the new one. Like it's just ingrained in her, right? And it's ingrained in us. We let go of the lesser for the better. The problem is, are we seeing the better as better, right? Like that's the thing. And so the next question is, why is Jesus better? <laughs> Why is he better than that date? Why is he better than that relationship? Why is he better than that pay upgrade? Why is he better than that new house? Whatever it may be, why is he better? Verse 2 says he's both the founder of our faith and the perfecter of our faith. So let me explain founder. Uh, Jesus began our faith for us. He got us into the race. He pioneered our faith for us. If Jesus isn't real, then you're wasting your time and your faith is meaningless. He did all of the work to bring broken sinners to a holy God simply by faith in what he has done. Jesus is the founder, and he's also the perfecter. So check this out. Uh, Jesus enters us into the race, and he takes us to the finish line. Jesus justifies us, and he sanctifies us. Jesus began our faith, and he'll make sure to complete it. And I want to encourage you, believer that's walking with Jesus for years, he was not just with you when you first placed your faith in him right? Like a lot of us have this sweet moment where we're like, man, Jesus is so real and so good when we first come to know him. And we feel like slowly he's just weaning us off like he was training wheels. And now we're kind of on our own. That's not true. He's with you now. He's not just the founder. He's the perfecter. He's guarding you, Christian. He's walking with you, Christian. And, and, um, and so it says that he endured the cross that you should have hung on. He despised the shame that should have fallen on your shoulders, and he's seated now in heaven. How did he do this? Verse 2 says, for the joy set before him. For the joy set before him. So in Luke 4, Satan comes and tempts Jesus after 40 days of fasting, not eating, right? I can't go four hours without eating Chipotle, right? Jesus went 40 days without eating. And then Satan comes and says, hey, you know that rock? I know you're super hungry. I know you can turn that rock into bread. Just do it. Feed yourself. I know you're hungry. It's okay. And Jesus says no. In Matthew 26, Jesus is being betrayed and taken by soldiers, right? And Jesus says, I could bring an 
army of angels down right now. And he says no. And he lets, he lets himself be betrayed and taken. And John 19, Jesus is hanging from the cross, and he could have taken himself down. He could have saved himself, and he says no. Friends, don't be mistaken. The nails weren't holding the Son of God to the cross. The love for the glory of God was. His love for you was. He said no. How? For the joy set before him. How for the joy set before him. Jesus looked to the joy of doing the Father's will. Jesus looked to the joy of bringing glory to God. Jesus looked to the joy of the coming resurrection. And Jesus looked to the joy of bringing you, sinner, to himself in eternity forever. And he endured it all for you for the glory of God. This is the Savior we get to look to, right? To run this race well. Verse three says, consider him. Friends, if we're gonna not grow weary, if we're gonna press on, we have to keep looking at him. Verse four says, man, if you're gonna resist sin, you gotta look to Jesus. Like he resisted at the point of shedding blood. He's gonna be our source. He's gonna be our helper in that. And if we take our eyes off of Jesus for a second, we fall. Right? We know that. Like We've all fallen. We know what it looks like to take our eyes off of Jesus. And so in order to run our race, we have a Savior to look to. Amen? Second thing our verses show us is that we have a Father to discipline us. Okay? So let's read verses 5 and 6. 5 and 6. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Okay? So um, I am willing to, I'd be willing to bet that no one here gets excited about discipline, right? No one's like, oh God, pick me. Like, I want to get disciplined, you know? Like, please God, like, you're not praying for it, you know? Like, it doesn't strike a joyful chord in our hearts. Um, But what I love, this is probably the most impactful part of this passage for me, just in my personal edification and journey with Jesus, uh, these verses uh, correct all of our wrong thinking about discipline and help us not to dread it, but to actually delight in it, right? So that's my goal as we go into this. And the author lays out three main ways that God uses discipline in our lives, okay? So the first is that discipline displays that we are children of God, okay? Discipline displays we are children of God. So verses five and six uh, are quoting back from Proverbs 3, which is a famous chapter in the Bible uh, that calls us to not lean our, on our own understanding, right? Um, and specifically in regard to discipline. So check it out. Discipline for us is naturally connotated and related with like hurt or hatred or punishment or pain or anger, right? We, we equate dis- discipline with those words normally. And he's saying, hey, you can't rely on your own understanding because God's discipline is different and unique. And so you can't lean on your own understanding. Uh, verse six says that God actually disciplines the one he loves. So wait, does that mean that like God disciplining me doesn't mean he's mad at me? Correct. Wait, does that mean that God disciplining me doesn't mean that, that I'm being punished? Absolutely correct. Discipline at its core is an expression of the love of God. And so look at verses 7 and 8. He continues, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father um, does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are an illegitimate child and not sons. So this is the logic he gives. No discipline equals not a child. Right? Uh, and so let me just let me explain. This is what you do when you're in your like 
late 20s and you've got kids. My buddies and I, Nate and Ben, take our kids to the mall and we walk around and we're like mall walkers. And, uh, and there's like this little play area and uh, the parents are sitting around the edge and all the kids are in the middle playing. And uh, so we're hanging out and doing our thing. And then my daughter, Gracelyn, uh, takes... Uh, some food away from a kid, right? Takes his Cheerios right out of his hands. I'm like, you learned that one from your mom, right? Uh, but she always eats my fries when we're at dinner. But anyways, um, so I'm like, and so uh, who do you think, here's my question, who do you think went up and disciplined her and told her you can't do that? Think it was Uncle Nate or Uncle Ben? No, her dad. I got up and walked over, hey, sweetheart, I know those Cheerios look amazing, but you can't have them. They're not yours. Now, you can ask for them. And so I disciplined her. Babe, you can't, you can't do that. Give them back. Hey, come here. And, um, and so to be clear, everyone around the circle knew, oh, that's her dad. They were like, oh, that's a random stranger, you know, talking to that girl. No, like they knew. So my discipline of my daughter was a sign that she was my daughter, right? Everyone around the circle knew that's her dad. This is the logic that the verse is explaining. And I also want to draw this out. Um, God's discipline of us isn't uh, always or even primarily in response to something we've done wrong. Okay? He, he disciplines to, uh, to correct, but he also disciplines to teach. And so my dad, when I was 16 years old, I got a 1997 Mazda truck that was a stick shift, and he made me parallel park that thing perfectly before I could take my driver's test, okay? I was frustrated. It's not even part of your driving test, you know? But I had to do it perfectly. He wanted to discipline me to be prepared um, to, to park in any scenario I get myself into. So in the moment, frustrating, confusing, but now I look back and I'm like, I'm kind of decent at parallel parking, right? So you needed, I hope, yeah, you know? But anyways... I want to draw this out. If you feel like you're being disciplined right now, like if you actually feel right now that God is disciplining you, I'm encouraging you to fight the lie that he's mad at you. Right? Like he's disciplining you because he loves you. In fact, these verses say if you haven't been disciplined by God, you probably aren't his child. Right? That's how serious it is, right? And so I've got to ask you, has God taken something away from you? Has God withheld something from you that you really want? Has God let you experience the weight of something you did wrong? If so, that is proof that he loves you, right? Like that's proof that he cares and he's involved and he's disciplining you. And the first thought that comes to my mind when something bad happens is, what did I do wrong? Right? Why is God mad at me, and what can I do to make him happy again? But that's the opposite response of how we should uh, uh, react to, to discipline in our lives. There's something bad happening in our lives, right? It's not because God... And so I just want to encourage you, Christian, if you are struggling or suffering right now, it's not because God is mad at you. He loves you, and he's using that to sharpen you and do something beautiful, And so under the gospel, we are not afraid of discipline. We do not dread it. We delight in it because we believe Jesus paid for our sin in full on the cross. Therefore, we just get love because he paid for all of the wrath, right? This is good. So discipline displays that we are children of God. The second thing that discipline does is it wakes us up to revere him, right? Kind of a unique point, but this is huge for me. It wakes us up to revere him. Now, verse 9 says... Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and, have res- and we've respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? So 
uh, we have all had fathers or father figures that have disciplined us. And whether we liked it or not, we received it. And the verse is saying, hey, if you received their discipline, how much more should you receive God's discipline, right? Like this is what it's drawing out. And so um, here, here's how this plays out in our lives. My, my daughter, like I say, is amazing. I love her to death, but she can quickly think that she rules the world, right? Like that she's the, like she's like heads up our household, you know? And my wife and I see that and we have to discipline her and we have to put her in time out and talk to her and say, sweetheart, I love you, but you don't lead this house. You're not the king of this world. They're the queen of this world, as precious as you are. And she, and she kind of wakes up to the reality, oh yeah, you're right. Like you, you are my parent, you know? And there's a submission that happens in it. So here's how it plays out in our lives. Things start to go well. We start to kind of figure out life, got a steady job and good relationships and good friendships and steady income. And we start to think, man, I've kind of got it figured out. And you start to slip into this season where you think that you're the king or queen of your life. You start to think you rule it, you understand it, you're good on your own, you're independent, and you quickly forget about God. You forget about your dependence on him. And Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer, said the truest trial isn't when things are going bad, but when things are going good, right? The truest test of who you are isn't how you respond when things are bad, but when things are good. And so, friends, what we do is we start to creep back on the throne of our life that we once gave Jesus, right? And then discipline comes, and it wakes us up, out of love, wakes us up. Oh my gosh, what am I doing? No, I, and Jesus just says, you're not, you're, you don't rule your life, I do. You, you're not the king of this. No, I, I am, right? And, it's, and it sounds harsh, but it's the most loving thing he can do to wake us up to say, you don't lead your life. If you're a Christian, you remember what your life led to when you chose to lead it? Hurt and pain and regret and sorrow and, and all of that stuff. And yet Jesus says, no, let me bring you back into abundant life. Let me, let me remind you of who is leading your life now, and it's not you, and it's the most loving thing he can do. So discipline wakes us up to see who's in charge, right? And the last thing discipline does, the last way God uses it, is, um, uh, is that it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness, right? The peaceful fruit of righteousness. So look at 10 and 11. For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, I love how honest this is, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later, that's a, those are key, but later um, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Okay, so I think, just a raw reality, I think a lot of us uh, dread discipline because we've probably been disciplined improperly, like most of us, you know? And it's not to say our parents are bad or whoever raised you, you know, but we're just imperfect, flawed people who sometimes discipline out of anger rather than love. And so maybe that's your story. Maybe you've been disciplined out of punishment and not correction or out of anger and not love. And if that's true, I can empathize with you. I've experienced that too. But we start to connotate, we start to relate our experience of being disciplined with God's promise of, being, of disciplining us. And so we start to replay how you were disciplined, how you were spanked, or whatever it is, and think, is that what God's doing to me? He just seems, you know, there's no point in it. And, and what it does is it results in anxiety and fear and despair and dread, and we resist the uh, discipline of God because we think it's going to be like how we used to be disciplined, right? But this verse is saying, no, 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 no. God doesn't discipline like your parents did. 
And I know your parents love you, and I know they try and stuff like that, but he's saying he disciplines different because they don't see the whole picture, right? He's, they discipline as best as they could, but he disciplines in holiness. He disciplines right. He sees the whole picture, right? And it's not out of anger or punishment. It's out of love and uh, correction. So throw that old experience away and grab on to God's new definition of his discipline. And it's not pleasant in the moment, right? But it produces something that you could never have without it. In Isaiah 55, uh, 8 and 9, uh, Isaiah talks about how God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so um, uh, for us, man, we see a puzzle piece, and he sees the whole picture, right? He, we see a movie trailer, and he sees the whole movie. And so I'm telling you, if you're in the midst of a suffering and a, and a trial and a temptation or whatever it is, and you're thinking, what is God doing? I'm promising you he's doing something. He sees what you can't see. He knows what you don't know. His ways are higher than your ways can even explain. You're finite. He's infinite. He's doing something in the midst of that. He's producing the peaceful fruit of righteousness in you. And I know it's not pleasant, but I promise it's producing something in you. And so, Christian, you have to know, even though you can't see it, God is doing something. If you look in the moment, you despair. If you look to what Jesus is doing and what he could do, you delight, right? And you may say, I don't know, Austin, I don't know if that makes sense, man. Like, uh, uh, well, the ultimate picture of this is the cross, right? Like, how could God take something horrible and make it beautiful? The painful, gruesome, humiliating death of the Son of God resulted in our victory cry. It's what we sing. It's why you're here. It's why we have life and breath and belief and faith, because Jesus uh, endured the most gruesome, horrible moment in all of history, in all of eternity, on the cross, taking our sin on, and that is our victory cry. How could God repurpose your pain for his glory? Look to the cross. He can surely do it. Amen? And so, if we're going to run the race, we need a father to discipline us uh, as he reminds us that we're loved in his children, a father to wake us up to revere him, and a father to discipline us to remind us that he's doing something in the midst of what we're going through. Uh, and so uh, we don't have to dread or despair and discipline because of the gospel. We get to delight. And if you're going to finish the race, we also need a path to run. So that's our last point. Let's read verses 12 and 13. He says, Therefore, in light of everything we just talked about, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Okay, so a path to run on. Uh, type A people are like, yes, I need a list. I need something to like go. This is, he gives us five applications, right? Five ways to respond to this truth. And so we'll walk through them first. He says, he says lift your drooping hands, okay? He says, lift your drooping hands. This is the imagery of someone that's tired, okay? So this is addressing tired. And I'm willing to assume that a lot of us in the room are tired. We literally live in a culture that celebrates busyness. Basically, if you're not tired, you're doing something wrong, right? That's the culture we live in around us. And in Exodus 17, uh, the Israelites are fighting the Amalekites, and Moses is their leader, and he lifts his hands to God. And every time he lifts his hands, the Israelites are winning, but his hands start to get tired, and so he starts to lower them. But as he lowers them, the Amalekites start to win, and Israelites are losing. And so two friends come along and lift his hands up in battle, and the Israelites win. So I want to draw out two things from this. The same language is drooping hands. One, lifted hands mean that you're letting God do the work. Okay, first thing, lifted hands mean you're letting God do the work. Moses wasn't fighting in a battle. 
He was lifting his hands and trusting God to fight his battles, right? And so if I can just press in, maybe one of the reasons you're tired in this season is because you're trying to do it on your own. You don't have your hands lifted. You have your hand on the ground doing stuff, right? And God's invitation is lift your hands to him like my daughter does to pick her, her up, right? Lift your hands to him and trust him to do what you could never do and you are tired. And where he says, give me your burden. Let me take that. Second thing, Moses was a legend, but he needed friends to lift his hands. Amen? He's a strong man, an amazing man we celebrate, and yet he got tired too, and so will you. And so I'm asking you, invite people into it. Surround yourself by community. Even when you're tired, come to church. Even when you're tired. So join a city group, right? Like, or start a new one or, um, or open up to your city group and let them know, I'm tired. This is hard. I need you to lift up my drooping hands to help me fight the battle in front of me. We'd love to. Second thing, uh, the application. He says, strengthen your weak knees. Strengthen your weak knees. This is the imagery of fear. So someone that's afraid, right? You've got weak knees. Um, uh, the current audience that's receiving this in Hebrews was facing persecution for their faith in Jesus. Uh, they're facing death or imprisonment. And so they were afraid. He's saying, strengthen your weak knees. I want to ask you, church, what are you afraid of? Where is your faith submitting to your fear, Right? In Matthew 14, Peter is walking on water, and, uh, and he gives in to his fear, and he drops, and he cries out, save me, and God, Jesus, grabs him and pulls him up. So in a moment of fear, he cries out in faith, and Jesus grabs him. This is my invitation for you, friends. Whatever you're afraid of, call it out. Ask God, save me, right, from that, and uh, confess that, lay it at his feet, and ask God to help you. Uh, with your unbelief. Help him to help you believe. And so, what, yeah, what are you fearing? What, what, what fear is in front of you? Is it God's provision? He's not going to provide for me. He doesn't care about me. Is it his truth? Is he really who he says he is? Whatever it is, lay it at his feet and ask him to help you. Third, make straight paths for your feet. Make straight paths for your feet. This is huge. So if you think, um, especially in ancient times, but even now today, if you're going to create a path the first thing you do is you clear the obstacles out of the way, right? To make sure that you're not going to stumble or hit something or whatever. You want to make a straight path, clear the obstacles. So um, here's, uh, here's my question for you in this. Um, what can you remove from your life to lower sin's opportunity? What can you remove from your life to lower sin's opportunity? Listen, the battle with sin is spiritual, but it's also very practical, right? My wife and I, when we were engaged, we made a rule that we would not be in a room with the door closed. We just knew for the, until we got married, we were not going to be in a room with the door closed. We wanted to stay pure and fight sin and walk in purity. So that's, that, was all, that was our boundary. That was our straight path that we moved an obstacle out. No closed doors, right? Now we close the door all the time. It's great. But anyways, um, uh, amen. Yeah, it's holy. But anyways, fourth, the fourth application. My wife's not here this one. She'll be the next one. I don't know if I'm included. But anyways, fourth uh, application is run together. Fourth application, run together. So we got a tired person, a fearful person. The third one makes her as a struggling person. This one would be a lonely person, right? Alone. So run together, right? Uh, it's the imagery of teamwork. So I'm looping verses 14 and 15 together. We have a video to show you real quick. This hill taking a toll on a couple runners trying to finish those final 20 yards. Wow. Yeah, you can see. What, what a tremendous show of sportsmanship as you've got an athlete who can't quite make it and they've got a team, a, a girl from another team trying to help her to the finish line so she can finish the race. That's what 
now That's another what the sport one is all well. about. Oh, my goodness. This is just incredible. The sportsmanship, phenomenal as you see those final yards there. As you see Clemson and Louisville helping the Boston College runner. That's Tate and Pease. And the Boston College runner can't even lift her legs right now. She'll try to cross the finish line. What a shot right here at Lakeman Soccer Park and Carey. But you sacrifice your own position to help another athlete finish what they started. And that, that's a true sportsmanship. Isn't that, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that amazing? I'm pretty convinced this is how I'm going to enter heaven. Like, like you guys are going to be dragging me there, you know? Um, um, but really and seriously, man, I, like, I just, I look at that, I've watched that video certain times, and all the people that ran past the girl, I thought, man, like, one, I don't blame you. You know, I'd probably, I'd do the same thing. But in the same way, in the Spirit of God, those two women that said, no, I'm not letting you stop. Church, this is our call. This is our call as we're running our race to see, man, oh, man you, your legs can't make any longer. Let's stop. Let's grab them and, and go. And I've seen this happen in our church. I've seen you guys do it. And so my call for you is to reach out to the people you haven't seen in a while. Like, reach out and ask them, how are you actually doing? Can we hang out? Can I take you to lunch? I'm not letting you stop. I will drag you across the finish line, but I will not let you stop. This is our call. We need to run together, go to them. Last thing that we're called to do is to think about more than the moment. Think about more than the moment. So it kind of is a weird story at the end. It brings up Esau, and you're like, e e e well, who is that, you know? Well, uh, Abraham had a son named Isaac, so Abraham's pretty prominent, and Isaac had twins. Esau was born first, and then Jacob. Esau's hunting, comes back. Jacob's making soup. Esau says, bro, I'm hungry. Can I have some? Esau sa or Jacob says, totally. Just sell me your birthright. All the privileges that come with being a firstborn son, just give me that, and I'll give you some soup. Esau is so hungry, he says yes, gives over his birthright. Now, it sounds weird, right? Why would you bring that up in the light of talking about race and endurance and all that stuff? Well, the point is you need to think about more than the moment, right? If you're going to run the race, you need to think about more than the moment. If you're going to endure and persevere and stay faithful to Jesus, you need to think about more than the moment. I mean, consider this. Esau, for a lousy bowl of soup, gave up all of the privileges of being a son being a firstborn son, and gave him away. And so, friends, the call for us is to not think about the moment, right? But it's a ridiculous exchange, but when we're tired and we're hungry and we're alone and we're afraid and we're struggling, we will absolutely operate like we're in the moment. So we need friends, we need the Spirit of God, we need the Word to help us to not live in the moment like Esau, but to live for the joy set before us like Jesus, right? Church, uh, the race is real. Right? The stakes are high, our running is long, the temptations are constant, the struggle is real, but the good news is that we have a Savior to look to, right? a Father to discipline us, and, um, and, and, and we have a path to run. Right? And so by Jesus' grace, may we all finish well. And we get to take communion this morning, and uh, I'm encouraged and excited we get to respond to his grace in this way as an act of worship. If you're not a believer, I'd encourage you to sit. Uh, first off, I encourage you to give your life to Jesus, right? Like, give your life over to him, repent of your sins, and trust in him. Uh, if you're not there yet, if you're still considering, just I'd encourage you to sit where you're at, and uh, this is a meal for believers. Uh, if you've got kids in the room, if they've placed their faith in Jesus, absolutely have them uh, take communion. If they haven't, you can have them walk up, but 
we'd encourage you to not have them take communion. It's a meal for the believer. If you are a believer, uh, um, this is a meal that to remind us that Jesus' body was broken for us, right? That his blood was shed and given for us. And so my encouragement as you come... His blood was not only broken and shed uh, for, or his body wasn't only broken, his blood wasn't only shed for you, but for the person next to you. And the person next to you in line may be struggling and their feet can't make it. I'd encourage you to pray for them as you, pray, as you walk through, man, God, would you help them? Would you use me to help them? And so, love you guys. I'm going to pray and we'll take communion.